This is Defenders TV Podcast, episode 106, where we're talking Summer of Spider-Man again and discussing Spider-Man 3. Welcome back, fellow Defenders, to our Summer of Spider-Man coverage. We're talking about Spider-Man 3 by Sam Raimi and starring Tobey Maguire. Not at Spider-Man Homecoming just yet, but we will be getting to it very soon. I'm one of your hosts, Derek. Hi, I'm one of your other hosts, John. And rounding out the group, I'm your friendly neighbourhood, Chris. He is your friendly neighbourhood, Chris. He is. I know. <laughs> yeah, we are We are back with our third in our uh, Sam Raimi, Tobey Maguire series when we're talking about Spider-Man 3. Yeah, shooting his white webs all over central Dublin. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't remember that. <laughs> oh, I do. I would say. I would say it started already. Yeah, uh, Spider-Man Homecoming came out in the cinema last week. Uh, we have actually seen it, but we are going to reserve our discussion for that for the next episode, for episode 107 of Defenders TV Podcast. And we're going to go back to talk about the final part of the trilogy of uh, Sam Raimi and Tobey Maguire. Gentlemen, are we ready to get into this? Yes. Exit stage <laughs> left, I think. <laughs> Spider-Man 3. Uh-huh. Yeah, we did uh, We did say when we started our suburb Spider-Man, because of the holidays, we started a little bit later than we thought we were gonna t- going to, and because of holidays, we're, we're kind of have to move around our episodes a little bit, but we will be getting our, uh, our Spider-Man Homecoming discussion out pretty soon. Absolutely, and of course, you can find that on DefendersTVPodcast.com forward slash iTunes, or you can search any other good podcast catcher just search defenders tv podcast and of course itunes is now apple podcasts mm-hmm. so yes <laughs> that's all we have to say that's about all it. we have to say on that. <laughs> yes yes download your apple podcast app and search for us under defenders tv podcast or spider-man or any of the defenders uh iron man iron fist <laughs> almost <laughs> forgot that there iron fist jessica jones uh luke cage or um daredevil and you will find our podcast popping up in your feed just make sure you subscribe we will be talking about obviously the defenders coming up on august 18th though uh, absolutely coming up pretty soon guys really looking forward to that too no and just think then we'll also be getting punisher early next year if 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 rumors are to be believed mm. yeah. yeah there's so much defending to it's be good. done it's great looking looking forward to it right gentlemen Let's get into this. Uh, <laughs> yes, Derek. If, fellow defenders, if you may not have understood from the, the urgency that we are trying to get this one, it is A, because we want to talk about homecoming so badly, uh-huh. so badly. <laughs> and B, this is almost like that uh, that uh, the family visit that you have dreaded <laughs> for months coming uh, and you have to get it done and then you have to tell your friends about it. Um, so, yes, in the spirit of all things family... Um, Let's just get through this and get on to homecoming. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Well, like Spider-Man 3 is just like so unfair. Oh. <laughs> Emo John has entered the room. Uh, well, Spider-Man 3 was again directed by Sam Raimi, the man who brought us the last two Spider-Man films. Uh, no indication of quality there, unfortunately. Uh, it was written by Sam Raimi and Ivan Raimi, his uh, his brother, uh, who wrote Drag Me to Hell and Army of Darkness with, uh, with Sam Raimi. Uh, it, the screenplay for the movie was done by Alvin Sergeant. Interestingly, he did the screenplay for Spider-Man 2, Spider-Man 3 and The Amazing Spider-Man with Andrew Garfield. So after this movie, he was kept on board to write the screenplay for uh, for Amazing Spider-Man. I thought that was quite an interesting fact. No, that is interesting. I mean, good Spider-Man 2, uh, 3, <clears throat> well, we'll reserve judgment. Uh-huh. And 
trying to think. I think I remember liking the first Andrew Garfield installment, but I actually really need to see it again, yeah. to be honest. Um, and of course, it wasn't just directed by Sam Raimi. There were, what, however many, 20, 30 uh, film executives uh, involved in the direction and production of this movie. <laughs> Maybe are, their kids, their pet goldfish. Those are the rumours. Um, a few will, others. We will definitely be discussing yeah, that as we get homeless in. people off the street. <laughs> <laughs> but obviously this movie again stars Tobey Maguire in the role of uh, of Peter Parker and Spider-Man. Uh, also stars Kirsten Dunst, James Franco, Bryce Dallas Howard, Topher Grace, Thomas Hayden Church. Uh, there's lots of people in this movie. Um and lots of things happening. John, do you want to tell them what they gave us with your synopsis for the film? <laughs> sure. Peter Parker, played by Tobey Maguire, and MJ, Kirsten Dunst, seems to finally be on the right track in their complicated relationship. But trouble, of course, looms for the superhero and his lover. Harry is unable to forgive Peter after discovering that he is responsible for his father's death as Spider-Man and takes on his father's mantle of the Green Goblin. An extraterrestrial Venom symbiote turns Peter's Spider-Man suit black and takes control of him, not only giving Peter enhanced power, but also releasing the inner, darker, emo side of his personality. <laughs> Peter must overcome the suit's influence as two supervillains, Sandman and Venom, rise up to destroy him and all those he holds close. Yes, if you haven't joined us for our uh, Summer Spider-Man so far, we do cover the movie slightly differently than the way we do our, our top five points uh, for the shows. We've been talking about the kind of arc of Peter in the movie, the villains, the supporting char characters, the actual relationship between the hero and villains, and then the final battle overall. That's kind of been the, the arc of how we're, do how we're doing it. So, uh, so first off, obviously, it's Peter's arc in this movie. Um, starts out really with the huge confidence that he starts to get from having the black suit and the Venom symbiote in the movie. Chris, do you want to take us off with a bit about Peter in this film, about Peter Parker's uh, journey? Sure. <laughs> um, okay, so look, I'm going to get out to it. While, while I, there are a lot of um, detractors from this film, if you dig deep enough, there is the the how would I put the gem among the rough in that there are some nice overarching story arcs. The first being very much like Peter and the acceptance post Spider-Man two of New York city to be of to Spider-Man mm -hmm. after feeling for what we can assume is a number of months, years, perhaps as Spider-Man that he is the, de facto vigilante and is hated all obviously influenced and kind of propagandized by uh propagandized is a word i'm just making up as i, I like said it, it i like it. Uh, i just caught that and i went oh my English teacher's gonna hate me for that one um <laughs> but obviously jjj is in the daily bugle and still on his ever loving rant of Get me Spider-Man. Mm -hmm. um, get me that dirty shot of Spider-Man. And what we see here is Spider-Man go through, or Peter Parker, go through an arc of... It's the, the, the rise before the fall. Mm -hmm. And then what we can assume is some form of uh, resurgence in acceptance by New York City at the end battle. And that's really where he comes from. Like... We can get into the symbiote itself later mm -hmm. um, because there is a lot more to it in terms of the comic lore, what they changed about the comic lore, 
obviously it just being a suit that he can take off, um, which is still one of my biggest things about this film. If it lets him take it off, of course. <laughs> well, yes, but then, of course, he takes it off four or five times, yeah. and it's not like some of my, one of my favourite memories as a child was the animated uh, Spider-Man 90s cartoon Mm -hmm. where they actually did it right where it was he was able to morph it the suit into his old suit he was able to morph it into standard civilian clothes he was able to um basically it could take on any shape and the first shape it took on was the black spider-man suit right um but he was wearing it at all times though from he was wearing it at all times it was part of him it did literally bond with him Mm -hmm. and so one of the bits that we we kind of from the comics right is that in the comic books the fantastic four reed richard was the one who discovered that the 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 costume itself was actually a symbiote right um they had to change that this in obviously because the fantastic four is owned by fox and not Uh sony so we got um uh doc Kurt Connors, mm-hmm. which was his second incarnation in this Raimi verse, and was actually originally at one point going to be the villain of this film, which yeah. was then held off and put in for um, what we now know as the Garfield era. Yeah. Um, Always felt sorry for, for the actor who plays Dr. Kirk Connors because it's kind of one of those ones where from the start he's got no arm, he's he's been in the life of Peter Parker for a little while, uh, and you always feel sorry for him because it's like as if he was promised the role that, don't worry, in the future you get to become the lizard. You know, it's it's going to be there. Don't worry, we have we have a big plans for you. And then they yep. just completely sideline yeah, him here no, absolutely. As, a, as a kind of a background character, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, One th- interesting bit, okay, and I just want to kind of get this in now. Mm-hmm. A lot of people felt that this film was left on a what next? What's next? That was originally because there was an additional three other films ready and kind of build, being built out while this film was in production mm. and being released. So there was Spider-Man 4, 5, and 6, right. which were going to take us... was going to basically explain some of the things that left at the film. Mm-hmm. The Again, I don't want to... I really should say spoilers, but then... No, not really. It's if you fine. haven't seen it by this point, you're fine. So the death of Harry, the the deterioration of um of the MJ relationship, which we'll get to later. Uh, Kirk Connors, actually, tidbit: if you look in the scene where himself and Peter are in the college, not even lab, the college desk, the lecture hall, right? Yeah, um, yeah. there is a lizard skeleton there, Very foreshadowing good. it. Um. But anyway, look, so the the bit about the confidence I wanted, the arc I want to get back to on the confidence is that this was, in essence, a quite a good story arc. Yeah. You do have the, 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 the drive up for Peter Parker, uh, but it continues. And then there's that flipping point where we could get the suit. The anger is, as they say, magnified. Yeah. Uh, his base urges. Uh, and we start getting that now infamous jazz singing <laughs> scene dancing scene the walking down emo emo peter parker um uh, yeah we get that and then what well, that leads to the inevitable fall of who spider-man is yeah uh, and it actually the worst part is they actually had even more scenes on that fall 
where uh, which were cut and as part of the deleted scenes, which there is still a petition right now to get the scenes released as the original film, similar to what they did with uh, Spider-Man 2.1 mm-hmm. when they released on DVD, um, where they have Peter Parker as Spider-Man in his black suit. Like you remember, there's the scene where the photographs and he sees Spider-Man throwing actually has, has stuck a robber through the windshield of a car. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There was all those scenes in there. Right. Uh, and they cut that and put in the uh, those photography pieces instead. Right. Um, so that fall was even magnified greater than what we saw mm. in like this. It, it's the right impulse, definitely. You've got a character here that's a nerdy character. He's one of us as he starts out in, in Spider-Man 1. You know, he's a, he's a normal kid who has something huge happen to him and then becomes a superhero. He's He's the most friendly neighborhood spider-man i suppose he's the most uh, the most grounded superhero that we've seen in films yeah the most dancey well that's the problem i suppose yeah by it is the right impulse to do this when you've got someone that becomes hugely famous in the city for what they're doing you kind of take that path that you would with you know a small town kid becoming a famous musician you know that's the arc you go on that they become a bit of an ass that they start to believe too much of the hype about themselves and start to push away their friends but it's been done really well in tons of films i don't know where they went wrong here with the arc for peter um it's it's not that he's an ass it's that he's acting completely out of character. It's just ridiculous. I mean, look, I'm going to say it. They, that's where this film, for me, just kind of starts to fall apart. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think... Um, I actually... I think this is a tale of two halves. I, I actually think, at the base of it, with Sandman, there is potential for a really good um, movie. And I like the confidence um, that Peter gets from Venom, even introducing the symbiote at this stage and, and that. And I'd love to see, as Chris has said, the, the you know, these um, deleted scenes um, showing his fall even more so, rather than him dancing down the street doing the, you know, mashed potato, <laughs> jive bunny, whatever it is that he's doing. I mean, I would say Venom's more techno, actually, rather than jazz. <laughs> um, anyway, but like, you know, even the other people walking down the street and going in and out of that uh, clothes shop, the, tail- the suit shop, mm. even they're looking at him weird. So like... Whether that was just Sam Raimi putting that in because that's what he felt about the scene and he was doing it against his wishes or something, I don't know. But, I mean, even the people in the scene are reacting to him as though, what the hell are you doing? In much the same way as myself as an audience member was thinking exactly the same thing. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, of all the music genres to pick, um, just my opinion, um, jazz why jazz um i don't know it's but easy it's to just sing, completely out of sync um however i love the symbiote being introduced i love eddie brock being introduced well let's go on to our um, second and point, i love which is the, the thomas hayden church thing with sandman yeah moving to point two i yeah. suppose like i actually really like this tragic storyline that we have you know because i mean the green goblin harry and his father you know they're rich uh doc Ock is massively intelligent this is down down and out um thief um he's killed someone obviously we find out um that it is peter parker's uncle isn't it yeah uncle yeah, yeah, yeah uncle ben apparently um, uh, apparently and 
you know, he's got his daughter that he's trying to protect and mm. all this, and that's one of his rationales. So really good, um, I think, with Eddie Brock, just introducing that within the context of the, the bugle is really good. That kind of counterpoint to Peter Parker. I think the thing is, we didn't necessarily need to see Venom in this movie. Mm. It could have closed with Eddie Brock being pulled down in terms of at the bugle and Venom after being unhinged from uh, Peter Parker through, say, the church bells, they've mm-hmm. done the same thing, that at the end, almost a post credit scene, that it attaches to Eddie Brock. And there you go. Flip into Spider-Man 4 or something along those lines. Yeah. Um, because ultimately then it just starts to get really messy, um, the film, because all of a sudden, despite not having seen Sandman for what? 30 minutes, 40 minutes, 45 minutes of the movie, almost as though his story has gone. He comes back and teams up with Venom for seemingly no apparent reason. Yeah. Or other than that they've had an encounter in an alleyway. Um, and I, I just kind of feel at that moment where we got singing in the rain minus 10 in terms of the dancing down the street, it just kind of lost the plot and it kind of broke down a bit from there. But mm-hmm. I think at the hub of it, and for the villains, there's some really good stuff there, along with the symbiote and, and Peter's kind of uh, journey to the dark side. Mm-hmm. So an interesting piece on this is uh, Sam and Ivan in later interviews and kind of when people started doing the whole Redux reviews of is this the worst superhero film of all time? They came out to say that at, uh, midway through this film, they actually considered making it a two-parter, which was going to be the first part was centered around Sandman, uh, where and he would get the black suit, mm-hmm. and at the end, as you said, it would then switch to a ve- secondary Venom film, leaving on a cliffhanger. Makes total sense. Absolutely, it does because that's you. You can see almost that in the film. The, it was then just. Um, as you said, the 20 or 30 other writers and directors in Sony's boardroom <laughs> yeah. decided no, that this needed to be a standalone single am- amalgamation. Well, I, remember, I remember the time a lot of discussion of the fact that, the, that Sam Raimi doesn't like the character of Venom. He doesn't understand that he doesn't feel it makes sense in his, in his grounded Spider-Man uh, friend of the city uh, guy who catches criminals who are robbing banks. It doesn't really sit in that environment, and it was imposed on him by Sony because they had the rights and Venom was becoming a very popular comic book character at the time. It was it was only well, not recently created, but it would have been within the last decade before um before this happened. Uh, yeah, yeah, so so late eighties uh, early nineties kind of when he started out and then it became popular throughout the nineties. Um and it does feel like this is completely shoehorned in. Much similar to the story behind uh, Batman and Robin, the Joel Schumacher yes, story. Um, <laughs> pretty much, this is the the Marvel Universe's version of Nipplegate. Yes, um, but I definitely felt just to be to to give the movie a compliment. My f- my experience of coming back to this was the first forty five minutes to an hour of this movie. I was really enjoying. I loved Thomas Hayden Church in, yeah. and his storyline of of he's um, as Salman. He's trying to um, help his very sick daughter by by taking money because he can't earn it anymore. He's no longer able to get jobs. So he's going out to get money to save his daughter. Really grounded storyline. Um, 
And I did like it. I really enjoyed it. And then there's just this flip of what's going on? Why are there so many characters? Why do we need to pay attention to Eddie Brock over here on this side? He's a bit he's a bit like a fly that's buzzing around everything that's going on. And then there's the Venom piece. He, he gets the symbiote attached to him. He becomes a big villain. He teams up with Sandman. And then Green Goblin comes back. It's like, lads, calm it down. Yeah, You're putting too much on the screen for people to concentrate on. In the back half of the film as well, the first hour seems to work quite well. Yeah, um, and, the, and it's timed quite well. It just seems like, oh, and then shove all this other stuff into the other hour of the film. Absolutely. And the whole tension that they've built up between Harry and Peter over the course of effectively kind of two movies oh, yeah. um, is suddenly just kind of dissipated by MJ um, turning up, really saying you guys work it out. He kind of says, no, I'm not going to do that. And then he gets hit on the back of the head. Yeah. And it's like, you know, you've really invested some script writing meat here into developing this relationship. And all of a sudden, okay, it makes sense for them coming together in this, but not for all the other previous work that they had done Mm -hmm. uh, to, to get that tension and disconnect between two former friends. Uh, like, it just wasn't a satisfactory um, kind of ending to what they had been building to. Yes. It just it felt convenient, um, really. Did you know, okay, so the, the scene with the butler where he comes in and tells um, James Franco, Harry, that the, the, the stab wound, he cleaned it himself, was originally meant to be uh, uh, an illusion. It was Harry's imagination, his cracked psyche. Like, so that the the, the butler had left long ago. Mm-hmm. And um, he, it was Harry's good side, his 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 friend of Peter's side. Right. Not okay. the crack that had saved. Because that's one of the biggest plot holes. Mm-hmm. Like, it's literally just unexplained. Yep, the butler walks in and he saves the day and brings it to the good side. Like, you're but like... also waited two and a half years to tell his <laughs> yeah, charge absolutely. that he knew that it wasn't Spider-Man yeah. that killed his father. Yeah, that's pretty pretty harsh. Yeah, so yeah. this was apparently one of the kind of, it was a deleted or it was either a deleted scene or it was left on the editing floor or it was just never explained in the way that Sam and Ivan wanted right. that this was what the, the, the butler was not like. He was a figment of Harry's imagination, cracked psyche. Mm-hmm. It was similar to William Defoe standing in the mirror talking to to Harry, James DeFranco. Right. Um, just kind of that it was all about his cracked psyche. Yeah. That makes sense then. That does then show that there was this tear in his psyche that he was completely mad that he this explains why he goes okay he knows he starts to understand that he is he has been being psychologically deranged in this hatred for peter parker and mm-hmm. spider-man yeah and that it does explain that he cleaned the wounds and all that himself right. um but again alas that is not what we saw. Yeah, I mean, as always, it's the butler's fault uh, in the library withholding information. I mean, it's an absolute Agatha Christie uh, plotline here. It really is. It, um, you know, what... I mean, what were they thinking? Yeah, I mean, the torn psyche thing would have just... Again, it would have melded so much better with what they'd done in Spider-Man 1 mm-hmm. with... Um, William Defoe as, as the Green Goblin, and of course then with Harry seeing bizarrely his father uh, and and all that in the mirror. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. 
And I look so just to kind of close out the villains uh, on this point. They treated with them with respect, aside from Goblin Junior, right? Um, who actually, like, I'm assuming it was trying to be an amalgamation of the the Hobgoblin and Green Goblin, but was really just a Mattel toy line sales <laughs> beat of Very having likely. a cool guy on yeah. a flying skateboard. Yeah, but Eddie Brock, G.I. Joe, exactly. But the Eddie Brock Venom, like that. The sim like Spider Man removing the symbiote in the bell tower, it dripping onto Eddie Brock, um, and he transforming him into Venom. That is ripped straight out of Amazing Spider Man three hundred from right. the original origin issue in nineteen eighty eight in May. Like that is quintessential. I was so happy seeing that on screen, and it's the same with um with Sandman with Thomas Hayden Church, mm. like the explosion tearing him to bits and stuff so, like. The gra- I remember watching the graphics there when, for the first time, seeing Sandman form himself with out of the sand, like that was spectacular it's to very watch. Cool. Yeah, yeah very and good. especially now. Remember, this is by what two thousand seven. Yeah. Um, yeah. like the the uh, actually at the beginning of two thousand six, this technology for building someone for CGI from sand was not even built yet. There are stories that they had to put a hundred men on this building the CGI as the film was being filmed. Very cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it was like, while they they made so many mistakes with these villains, mm-hmm. they also they also treated them with an element of respect. Yeah, yeah. big time. Um, yeah. In like to the, to the original comic book element. Absolutely. And uh, we, ha- we have called out the horror moments of Sam Raimi as in the other two films. The, the moment where Eddie Brock becomes Venom is pretty horrific. It's really well put together. I think it's, it's a yeah, really good and scene. It, it's weird that you say that he doesn't like Venom, actually, because mm. for me, just the the whole sort of tortured soul kind of within the the, the confines of, of the symbiote and, and just the the horror that Venom can can bring. It's surprising that Sam Raimi isn't a fan. I I found when mm. you said that actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It it feels like that's part of of what Sam Raimi brought to the movie version of the character. The comic book character is, he is almost like a laughing villain uh, in the background, just wants to kill everything in sight. There doesn't seem to be much character behind the Venom comic books, at least at this time. Um, this idea of him being on Eddie Brock, who's, who is just another wimp effectively in the city <laughs> and is being overrun by the Venom character. That seems to really have come from the films almost to me. Anyway, I, I don't remember a huge amount of, of the Venom character being, uh, being explored really by this stage. Uh, in in early, well, see, there there was there was a whole other lore. So the 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 rumor that Sam Raimi disliked Venom, um, I should put to bed. That was um, originally done because they wanted this big reveal of at San Diego Comic Con, I think, when they first did the first teasers. Um, so he basically said, no, he didn't like Venom. He didn't like Venom. And all the press stories, Venom would not be in this. Um, and it was a build-up to the reveal. What Raimi has since said, um, he kind of, yes, he did not like the idea of Venom at the beginning in terms of putting him in a cinematic universe or a cinematic screen. And then as he he read about the characters, the influence, the, the driving forces, he did actually become and see the, the strength behind Venom. I'd say um, he hates him now. He killed his career. Oh, now, yeah, exactly. Now he does. Um, but Venom actually is a complex character, and I could speak hours about it. Like, there right. is one where Eddie Brock 
and um, there's some the recent uh, early 2000s run um, on Venom. It's not actually Eddie Brock. Like it's convoluted the whole symbiote story, but there is some good stuff there. But overall, look, I think we like I could as I said I could speak for hours on these villains. So I think it's best we move on to the supporting characters. Yeah, yeah let's get on to yeah. supporting characters. One that's always made the list of the supporting characters has been Harry Osborn. Obviously, in the last couple of films, we've talked a lot about him already, but. One thing we didn't really talk about is him getting knocked out and losing his memory and becoming best friends of Peter and MJ again. That is the weirdest, most soap opera <laughs> written scene I have seen in a long time, especially in a Hollywood film. It's it, a telenovela. It really was. Yeah, it really it, is. It, it wasn't something that I was expecting to do with the character. Um get them back to become friends again yeah okay that's that's a, that's a standard hero arc you know to, to get them back being friends again but having a having a knock on the head to to lose your memory and then re and then fall back in to your old friendships yeah it was just a terrible choice for the character and then to do exactly as as you said john to have him get his memories back and then be convinced really quickly by mj that no you need to go and take care of of uh, of peter yeah, it's it was just a terrible arc for the character. Yeah, again, it, it just is unnecessary, and it adds more weight to this film that mm. it didn't need to carry. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, about MJ, lean, then? mean uh, filming machine, really. <laughs> yeah, what about MJ? So MJ's character in this movie. The I youth. feel really sorry for her character, actually. I just think the journey that uh, Kirsten Dunst had to go through with MJ is just must must have been brutal as mm. a, an actor um i just think it's really sort of wishy-washy really i think it's kind of um it, it's like an add-on it's just she's you know her acting career is getting attacked so takes out on peter again talking of soap operas it just felt like like this and um, it, it just felt just so thin what was happening and, mm-hmm. and, and the motives as to why she would suddenly go back into the arms of harry osborne um in, in, in that way and and then come back again and, and then everything be okay again and i mean okay maybe you can do that in a nice complicated way or in-depth way on a tv series with 10 episodes but when you've already got um you know the symbiote you've got and um, venom you've got the Green Goblin, you've got Sandman, you've got um, Peter Parker going on this journey, Harry Osborne going on his journey, mm-hmm. the butler, the dancing, the jazz club, um, and all of a sudden it just feels like they've run out of space. So they give Mary Jane Watson the most basic kind of um, on-off switch to, yeah. to do various things, and I felt really sorry for this character. Mm-hmm. A bit in Spider-Man 2 as well, it, you start to see the hints of this, but then it just really gets cliché. Yeah. Um, it's a real shame for such um, you know an important character in the Spideyverse. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, can't, I can't agree with you more. I, I did... Again, the seeds were there in this the juxtaposition to her Peter's rise and her fall. Um, like there is that element there where they were trying to widen the gap between these two characters mm-hmm. who 99% of the film goers at this point would know that they are star-crossed lovers. They will always be together. They always end up in each other's arms as they did in the end of Spider-Man 2 to a degree in Spider-Man 1, etc. Um, 
they just they they messed this up. Yeah. Like it's the only way. Um, I think of, think of how great that moment was at the end of Spider Man Two, where the go get him tiger moment. Like that's the one you'd waited for two full films, and now she's effectively a person with a terrible storyline because her acting career is failing, and he's not paying attention to her because he's getting so so much popularity in New York, and now he's getting the attention from uh, Gwen Stacy, so he's going off and interested in her. It's just. It's soap opera. But that's it. And it seems so petty. I mean, effectively, they they relegated MJ down to a a, a, a six-year-old saying, well, I don't like you anymore because you're more popular than I am. And I've just been fine. I mean, it almost had that kind of undercurrent of, of, of depth to it. Yeah. And it was a real shame. Yeah. So, again, this is the shoehorning effect. Gwen Stacy and Captain Stacy, aside from their slight, imp- its slight impact on Eddie, yeah, were not necessary for this film. And what you find out like, is the impact on Eddie is that Eddie has seen her from afar and is interested in, and her. went on one coffee date. I, she doesn't even think of it as a date. Like, exactly, she's, she has had such an impact on his life that she doesn't even know she has. I suppose she doesn't even know who he is. Almost, she kind of knows, but. Um, but yeah, it feels like, again, stuffing in extra characters. You could have done that exact same storyline with him stalking Mary Jane. Exactly. Like, this is what that got not make me. more sense? Like, why, yeah. why wasn't it Mary Jane, who is a model in the comics, uh-huh. doing the modeling scene at the top? Like, the element of having Gwen Stacy in the lab with him or in his class made no sense because it doesn't matter. Yeah. Like, there's no, there's nothing there. Like, having MJ being the model, being successful, but having more, the two are the, the success of Spider-Man and the success of Mary Jane. Basically, they come to terms with it at the end of Spider-Man 2. So why do you need to then diverge them again? Why not, like, have that stalker? She is now a star. She has a stalker. That is Eddie Brock. Yeah, yeah, that's the Eddie Brock part. And then you've got MJ's rising star, Peter, continuing to miss things. And... The, the the engagement falling apart that could be your storyline that mm-hmm. could be your arc for MJ where she at but then at the end we what we get is yes. and that is yeah. that is not even a cough chorus <laughs> that is it's basically the little engine that could right you get you get this build up and then we see her walking away from the grave mm-hmm. where we're back to at the beginning not even with the oh my god touching the lips moment at the end of Spider-Man 1 we have they are basically relegating it all the way back to Spider-Man pre Spider-Man 1 right. where she does not notice or care that much about Parker yeah. because of all this and this is where again I understand that they had this potentially in Spider-Man 4 Spider-Man 5 the the arc would be fulfilled and they would be back together but for the sake of what, the sake of destroying a central character mm-hmm. to Spider-Man lore, it made no sense. Yeah. And actually, speaking of destroying a central character, like they did nothing with Aunt May in this one. Like no. Aunt May is relegated to, oh, in my day, here's my beautiful husband, uh, Tear, here's the ring, and then just basically being a push character 
for going to see Peter two moments, yep. um, and then going to the, the the oh my god, Peter, calm down in the police office in front of Captain Stacy. That is it. Yep. Yep. Absolutely, and I mean even that scene between Peter and MJ where he's going to propose to her, like I, I started to feel nothing. I was like, Peter, don't propose to her, or you know, and like it all just. There was no investment there mm-hmm. in that relationship, which actually is a bedrock of the the Spideyverse. And I think, um, you know, similarly, by the end, were okay. Other than rescuing another person, you just there kind of going. I just didn't feel the the investment that Peter Parker would have to go out and rescue mary jane from the evil clutches of venom well, i mean I, no i mean other than to save yeah other than to save someone but what i mean is yeah. it just felt like they had undermined that relationship to just like a, a kid's brawling match of he said this she said that you did this you did that kind of thing that as an audience member i'm just like going why would you even bother mm-hmm. in the end and that was the shame and yeah, Aunt May may as well have joined Uncle Ben. <laughs> <laughs> well, how else would he get the ring that he gives back to her twenty minutes later? Well, that's uh, true. That is true. <laughs> yeah, you, actually, that is kind of pointless. That was? that was basically a prop for the fight scene of him grabbing it back from Goblin and flying through the air and having to grab it. That's what that ring was to me. Yeah, that's, it was literally oh, grab. Because do you remember the layaway sign mm-hmm. on the original ring he was looking at? That was never explained. Yeah. Like he did he go in? He just saw a ring and went layaway and like what is MJ the layaway? Can she just slowly invest in her until he Okay, you can't have both. Either he gets the ring talking about love from Aunt May mm-hmm. and because that is a poignant moment in theory. Like you could have built it around that, where he says, "I love her so much," and she's like, "Do you remember uh, Uncle Ben used to love me?" Yeah. And this is how he proposed to me. And then that triggers Peter wanting to propose to MJ. But then just the layaway scene with a break, yeah. and then Aunt May, <laughs> and you're like, "What? Yeah. Oh, back to this storyline." Okay. 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 Now I get let's it. keep going. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Um, any other background characters, any other supporting characters? Uh, Jay Jonah and Jameson, anything particularly from him other than a bit, of, bit more wonderful scene chewing in this movie? I still, I just love this guy. Yeah, I love, absolutely. He's awesome. I love character. He is always just this amazing piece to me. And having, okay, Raimi's, Raimi's brother coming in, um, just uh, kind of, and those scenes, uh, this is Ted, Ted, mm-hmm. Ted Raimi. Yeah. Coming in, he's still the comic humor, and I love him. Betty Brandt, mm-hmm. um, being the the buzzer scene, which I still laughed at when I rewatched it. Yeah. The yeah, yeah. like the comedic elements, but then again, you do have this. Uh, see, you have you what again should be the driving force of Spider-Man law and the lore. Excuse me. <laughs> Actually, no, I'm going to call it Spider-Man law. If you have <laughs> JJ in there, you have to have him going like loving, hating, and then kind of the redemption of, oh, okay, maybe Spider-Man's not too bad. No, no, I hate him anyway. Mm-hmm. Like, they should have had that in there. They didn't. They did not have this part in there. He basically goes from, get, he goes from Spider-Man's great to get me a picture. I still want a picture of Spider-Man doing something wrong. Mm-hmm. And then it cuts to basically him at the final battle 
paying a kid 150 bucks for a camera. <laughs> With no film it. I love that. Well, it's 100 bucks <laughs> for the camera. She doesn't exactly say how much the extra is for the... But we can assume maybe another 100, 150 for the <laughs> But that's it. Like, and again, this is the an element what I feel is this was the film of two halves that wasn't there was no second half mm-hmm. yeah. because that story arc doesn't happen. Like, it should be finished with potentially, like, J.J., after f- seeing this immense battle, for example, yeah. then going, actually, okay, Spider-Man is a hero to this city. Like, there was originally um, the whole, before the meteorite part of Venom coming in, we were going to see J.J.J. Jr., Yes. Um, uh, being the astronaut similar to the comic books, bringing the uh, symbiote back to Earth. Same character was going to be, the same actor was going to play it, but then because of financial constraints, they felt, and timing, they did not want to do a space scene with the astronauts, etc. And they didn't want to bring the character back. Um, But that then becomes quite interesting again, because you could have had JJJ Jr., (laughs) <laughs> Just say John. John, 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 John Jameson Jr. You could have had him there at the final battle. Mm-hmm. You could have had some element where the Venom, the black-suited Spider-Man, confronts Jr., kind of going, this is your fault, blah, blah, roughs him up. That could have been the... Like, there's so much there. But again, they just... They use a character to half of what he should, his potential should mm-hmm. be. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. That's true. Too much... It's a massive sandwich with way too much filling, mm-hmm. um, and I like those, but not in this case. <laughs> no, no, but that's what I mean. It, it's stuffed. It's like ordering a, a ham and cheese butty, but you get half a bit of ham, half a bit of cheese, half a tomato, but it's just loads of halves of of, of something. And it's spilling out all over the place, and it's got no structure. <laughs> and can you there try and home cream? You're not going back to that sandwich place no. again, John, are you? No, no, I'm not going back to Subway. Uh, right, well, that's that's the supporting characters. Um, we normally talk about the hero and villain's relationships at this point. So we have three villains here, and obviously Spider-Man. Um, we kind of have the relationship we talked about already between Peter Parker, normal good Peter Parker, and what's happened to him with the Venom symbiote, and that's kind of one of the villains of this movie, is how does he react when... He's been treating everybody like crap around him. So, yeah, that's that's one of the big relationships. There's obviously the relationship between Eddie Brock and um, and Peter Parker here where they're both rivals in work, effectively. So pr- a pretty good basis for their relationship and what's going on and how they're connected. You know, similar to in the past, we had um, the mentor in the first film uh, and also another, uh, another person that believed in Peter in the second film with Doc Ock. Uh, this time we have a rival within within the work environment. So again, a good setup for their for their relationship. He knows who he is. With Eddie, there is the Gwen Stacy part. Yes, yes, uh, yeah, which is obviously a, a large contributing factor. But then I go on to the the largest relationship discussion. And then the biggest one, yeah, is is obviously with um, with Sandman um, with Thomas Hayden Church's character. They put in a relationship here. Which is kind of, I don't know if you guys remember the movie Scream and where they get the rules of the third part of a horror film where mm-hmm. all bets are off, things you thought you knew from the beginning are now all changed. Does this work for you, this idea that that um, Sandman is the cause of Uncle Ben's death? Can I be honest here? 
Oh, Go please, on. please. <laughs> Thank you, listeners. I'm so sorry. I this probably this is 90% Chris speaking in this episode. Summer of Spider Man is 90% <laughs> Chris. That's that's all the all we love. So, I, okay, like you said, it's that scream moment where everything, all bets are off, and you, they will rewrite the origin to suit the the film. Mm-hmm. When I first watched this, I was like, okay, I can see where you're going, and it does leave an element of that redemption of a villain at the end where he flies away in a dust sand cloud of shame if you will (laughs) (laughs) i hope it was described like that in the script it's kind of like black adder isn't it it's kind of like maybe some large industrial hoover would help (laughs) (laughs) that would control sand now absolutely exactly or water apparently uh anyway um but doesn't that make cement sand and water no or flame makes glass Hello? It doesn't, by the way. Sorry, anybody that uh, anybody that doesn't know their science, that does not make cement. But anyway, sorry, Chris. Oh, the fire and glass part? Like, Goblin literally flaming him and nothing happens. I'm like, wait, pretty <laughs> sure hot flammable liquid flying onto sand creates a glassy substance. Absolutely. No, no, okay, okay, yep. fine. Okay. It does. So, in this hero-villain relationship, I get the where they're trying to do. They were trying to build... A character who you at the beginning were you beginning you felt sorry for him because mm-hmm. of the, his daughter then you kind of they they build him into an enemy you then start to hate him because of that assumed relationship with peter and uncle ben and then you get the the, the main battle the everything and then right at the end they redeem him by going actually it's not what you believed it wasn't his fault then Peter forgives him, and they like it fades to black mm-hmm. again. If that is your plan of doing so, you cannot take that central character out of the film for like an hour of across a two-hour film. Absolutely, like like they you need more, you need more kind of character development. Essentially, I I have more of a base problem with this, to be honest, and my base problem is. This is what propelled Peter Parker to become Spider-Man, the protector of the innocent, is that he caused the death of his uncle. This is the origin story that drove him to do it. Effectively, by putting this character as the cause of Uncle Ben's death and not Peter Parker, he has absolute right to go, Okay, well, then maybe I'll just go and make money and wrestle now in the ring and just make money with these superpowers that I have. It's taken away the whole with great power comes great responsibility because he hasn't learned that lesson because he wasn't responsible for the death of his uncle. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So they've yeah. overwritten this whole piece Completely. that was so important to the character in the first film just to shoehorn in a connection between Completely. Sandman I, and, and Peter. Completely. Uh, like, I, I would say it's a complete misstep. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in terms of what they're trying to do, and again, it's it, it's really indicative that like this film just seems to be scenes that are pasted together rather than any real rationale for them actually being connected in mm-hmm. some ways. And this is this is not one of them, you know. In, in terms of that connection to Sandman, just that that whole plea that he makes about his kid and so on now within the context of him killing uh uncle ben 
you didn't need Uncle Ben to be there. You could have had that tale of woe and, and all that, this idea that, you know, he was trying to help his kid and he's just gone down the wrong path. Yeah. Uh, and that kind of connection, you know, Spider-Man would understand that. He'd probably, you know, still sling him up and still cart him down to the the, the NYPD. But, I mean... Yeah, to me, it's a complete misstep, really, undermining the whole reason of Spider-Man 1 yeah. film and, of course, just the general origins for Spider-Man. I mean, I suppose it does come to another point of, you know, to what extent can filmmakers change maybe the concepts and origins compared to, say, maybe the comic storytellers? You know, who has... Well, 100%. And don't get me wrong. Like, obviously, we, we cover Gotham over on Gotham TV Podcast. They're doing a brand new origin story about who the killer of Bruce's parents were. You know, this is something that yeah. people have all their knowledge of who killed the parents. Some people know the... The version in the Batman movie from 1989. Some people know the version that was in the comic books at the start. You know, some people know the Gotham version now. There's loads of ways to do this. This was a terrible idea. No, absolutely. Idea. I mean, in a sense that it can be either or, to be honest. Yeah. But this didn't fit. Yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. Like it has to fit quite it, a bit of this And it's movie. quite interesting that this is a trilogy with the same writer involved and same director involved from the start and same company involved and same actors involved. And this was the decision they made to rewrite their own history, effectively. Um, so that that's where I suppose I have a bit of the, a bit of a problem with the heroes and villains relationship uh, in, in the movie, among some other problems. Um, anything else on that particular point, Chris? Yeah, it's just so I know where they were trying to, and I, I just had to quickly check it up there. <laughs> I remembered there was a point where Sandman became a good guy. He became a hero. Um, he fought with Silver Sable. He was even pardoned by the president in the comic books. Mm. Um, and I can see that's where they were attempting to potentially bring the character. You don't have access to a lot of the other Spider-Man heroes in or Coutremont uh, in that they had the thing. They didn't have the thing who is goes against or goes with. They didn't have the human torch. Mm -hmm. So the people that... Um, Sandman would kind of in the comic books go with they don't do this so it is I'm assuming what they were trying to do but again it just didn't work yeah yeah okay think on to the final battle yes yeah we kind of talked about it already but it is a it is a huge scene they do involve four major characters plus the people who are at risk like Mary Jane um yeah, yeah. so Mary Jane's in a taxi cab yep held up very high in the air Yep. By Sandman. And no, by, by, by Venom's the, webs. Yeah, Venom's webs, and Sandman is knocking away the police cars at, at the bottom, and the the, the yes. people coming to save her. Um, yeah. Okay. So <laughs> Wait. Go. Actually, hold on. Okay, so originally she was not supposed to be in a taxi cab. Okay. Uh, this was a again. This was another last minute change. Uh, made just prior to the film being the scene being filmed, where Kirsten Dunst nearly walked. Apparently, okay, she was so upset with this because originally she was going to be in the the in the building where she was going to be attached to some of the symbiote webs, but then they decided to put her in a cab and dangle her quite high, mm -hmm. literally days before the filming of the scene. I have no idea where this came from. 
I have no understanding of it. Oh. They, it. It seemed like they only wanted to have the cinder block fall into a cab so that she could pick it up and then throw it on Venom. Yeah. That was it. That was the whole rationale. Oh, 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 also because they wanted to put then a cement truck falling into the ca- taxi cab so that she could jump out of the taxi cab and plummet and Spider-Man and Green Goblin who grab her. Yeah. And that kind of flying down scene where they put the two of them on the board. I have no understanding, no reason. It just makes no sense. And just simply of all the final battle sequences that we've seen in the previous films, this one, it feels like... We've got loads of fun that we can do on computers now, so we'll just do it. Yeah, it, um, it, it felt like that big boss exciting. battle. It felt like that big boss battle at the end of uh, a, a game on the PS4 or Xbox or whatever. Uh, and that can work in computer games. Um, here, it just felt out of context mm. as to what had gone on before. And it was just odd i mean just whether it's the team up between venom and sandman conveniently eddie brock is using mj against him again you've not really seen enough of eddie brock inhabited uh, with the symbiote to really understand as you say his motives or anything Mm -hmm. yet you've got sandman writhing away for like what's his play in this why is he doing this like uh, it just makes no sense. For the team, surely up. he wants to yeah. be off stealing more banks, whilst uh-huh. all the police are at the bottom of Venom's black web, um, so that he can help his daughter. Like, I mean, it's ju- it just makes no sense that they they've drawn these characters and then like taken them in weird ways mm. because they've just not had room to 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 really explain why they've ended up there. Um, and, and, and I know we I keep think... saying this, but this is a long film as yeah, well. There's a on. lot of screen time here that they could have done things with the characters. Yeah. It's a bit like a jazz riff. It goes on forever. Jazz is my least favorite for- form of music, just to get that out there. Uh, so having <laughs> having Mary Jane as a jazz singer in here uh, and the jazz dance <laughs> sequence, it rubbed me up the wrong way for years. Anyway, um, that's kind of it. That's kind of our top five points to discuss about this movie i think a couple of notes as usual uh, obviously our cameo notes one of the standout moments really for me in the film is is bruce campbell's cameo <laughs> as the uh, the french <laughs> maitre d uh, of the restaurant where uh, where peter's going to propose to to mary jane i just really like his moment it's it's a much more caring uh, cameo that he has in this particular scene uh, that he's had in any of the previous films um and him trying to do a french accent is always hilarious wee oui, wee oui. yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, we do have our Stanley cameo obviously uh, this time he's giving advice to Peter in Times Square um, he's not saving anybody this time but, uh, absolutely but a nice, a nice... Um, speaking of wee oui, wee oui, um, it is reported that Topher Grace um, didn't drink any water during his breaks because he couldn't <laughs> use the bathroom with his costume on <laughs> nice facts there wee oui, wee oui. wee oui, wee oui. um I'll, I'll run through a quick few of them, just ones I love. So, to be fair, on Thomas Hayden Church and Topher Grace, Thomas Hayden Church worked out 16 months to get his physique for this film, um, which probably he only used for, what, like 20 minutes of screen time uh, in, in actual non-CGI. And Topher Grace did a six-month back-to-back to get that Venom under uh, prosthetic look that he had. Um, the photograph of Mary Jane 
is back again in this film, beside the police scanner, the one that he took in the uh, science exhibit in the original Spider-Man, which is a nice call over from the last two films. Mm-hmm. Um, I've talked about um, the the early draft had John Jameson Jr. from Spider-Man 2 returning. Mm-hmm. Uh, I still think that would have been better use of the symbiote, the introduction of the symbiote. Yeah. Uh, the one I did like, which is quite interesting, um, during the scene in uh, JJ's office, a newspaper on the background read, Doc Ock still at large. Interesting. Very cool. So fake they, news, bugle, fake news. Exactly. <laughs> they also do not mention the black hole in the middle of the river, but <laughs> let's not get to, let's not bring that point yeah, back. That's on the other end, other end of Manhattan. It's do you fine. think Topher Grace then was the you know, he got his um, Marvel production apps. Then <laughs> Possibly. This. To a degree, to a degree. Yeah. This was the introduction of Marvel-esque abs. Yeah. Um, which I always... And do you yeah. think he felt like Ned Flanders in his ski suit when he put on the, the Venom? It was like it him feels like I'm wearing nothing, nothing at all. all. <laughs> nothing at all. Nothing at all. <laughs> Love it. Um, and to close off, um, this is actually... and. Thank you, guys. One of you guys actually brought this up, and I didn't know about this, because this was an element when the Ultimate Marvel Universe had been born. So they did actually uh, combine the characters of Eddie Brock from The Amazing Spider-Man, the obsessive journalist, uh, the one we know from 1988, and the Ultimate uh, Eddie Brock, who's this skinny young man with a crush on Gwen Stacy. They brought them together. Mm -hmm. And this was only done to present Eddie as the the anti-Peter Parker, the shadowy version, uh, where the jealousy that Peter's kind of, and the, the up, the yin to Peter Parker's yang, right? if you will call it that. Did we miss anything, listeners? Let us know in the comments uh, of our Facebook group, of course. Yeah, yeah, um, definitely, yes. Go over to facebook.com slash groups slash Defenders TV podcast and come say hi. Yeah, always good to have you, have you join us there. Don't think we missed anything much uh, on the notes we were... Pretty negative on this one, but I think it's time to get on to our defense. John, do you defend Spider-Man 3? Do I have to go first? Yeah, I mean, what a tangled web it wove, really. Um, I give this 2.5 dodgy emo jives out of 5. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, I don't defend this. And I say that with a lot of pain, actually, because... I think at its heart, there is something I really can latch onto. It's just too much is added, whether it's storylines, mini arcs going on left, right and centre, the dropping of characters like Sandman almost halfway through popping up again, the undermining of Peter's rationale for becoming Spider-Man, the, the treatment of MJ... You know, I, I've not even mentioned Gwen Stacy, and it's mainly because I'm just like, why? Uh, because there's almost, why is she even in this? It, like, it, all of these things, I think, unfortunately, hide a nub that could have been a really good movie and could have focused on, you know, Harry and Sandman, uh, introduce the, the symbiote, but leave that for another film, introduce Eddie Brock, um, but, you know, and, and, and play with that. But, but instead, it really does get um, caught in its own web, I think, on, on this one. 
So, sadly, no, I don't defend Spider-Man 3. Okay, Derek, I'm going to leave my own personal views to the end. So I'm going to ask you, do you defend this film, Spider-Man 3? Oof, yeah. um, I have not watched Spider-Man 3 since I saw it in the cinema. Um, I bought the box set of the Spider-Man movies and... uh, I am well known for watching movies back to back, especially in series. I will watch the first to the third of pretty much every single trilogy, no matter what it is, whether it be the Star Wars prequels or any other trilogy from horror movies to to comedy movies. Uh, This is one I've avoided going back to because I had such bad uh, memories of it. And sadly, they they weren't the, the memories were better than the experience of watching this movie again. Um, as I said, I started out going, oh, maybe my memories weren't that were wrong. Maybe, I, maybe I'm going to enjoy this more when I'm older now. Maybe I have a different opinion about this. Maybe maybe I was wrong. Um, that all got turned on its head after 45 minutes of this film, and the film became a mess. It felt as if everybody who's been signed up to the movies, from Tobey Maguire to uh, James Franco and Kirsten Dunst, and Sam Raimi, those four central people that have been involved since the beginning of the movie, it felt as if, sorry, since the beginning of the series, it felt as if they were all going, we're done now, we're out, and we're going to shut down this franchise and walk away from it. Um, there's no other explanation f- to me as to why each of them would put in such poor performances and do such a bad job on the screenplay um, with Toby Maguire doing his dance sequence with Kirsten Dunst acting like a six-year-old with James Franco doing the knock-on-the-head acting with uh, the mess that is the number of villains that are in this film from under Sam Raimi's watch. It just feels like everybody was committed to delivering as bad a movie as they could get away with uh, and still make some money out of um, so they could all get out of their contracts and walk away happy. Uh, That's kind of what it felt like. And it's really sad because I liked... All of these actors, the only person that really has still maintained their career after this movie is James Franco. Drag Me to Hell is one of my favorite horror movies, but it's still a low-budget horror movie. And that's the only big credit that Sam Raimi has had after this film. And given how high everybody was on Sam Raimi after Spider-Man 1 and Spider-Man 2, it's a real shame that his legacy has been tainted by this film, uh, in in my view. But that's part of the reason why I feel... He did it on purpose to get out of the contract, uh, sadly. But that's my feeling. Don't defend the movie. Don't recommend it. Chris, you are a Spider-Man fan. You are the reason for the summer of Spider-Man. What's your feeling on Spider-Man 3? Do you defend it? Guys, I don't like being negative, And I feel like in this episode uh, of our podcast, I, I, I have been. I have been. And <laughs> I yes. So basically, no, I do not defend this. This is the worst Spider-Man film uh, in the history of cinematic Spider-Man films. And I am counting the 1970s TV pilot. (laughs) Now, okay, bear with me. And that's only, it's barely there, right? Spider-Man 3 is... I haven't covered the China syndrome, the Chinese version of Spider-Man yet. But anyway, sorry. Yeah, that's true. Spider-Man and his mech and his flying car. Okay, yeah, that's a whole... Okay, I may have to retract part of my statement. There is a, there's a bottom tier, okay? Mm-hmm. This is a pyramid. We have Spider-Man 3, Amazing Spider-Man 2, Spider-Man 70s, and 70s Japan Spider... Or 80s Japan Spider-Man at the bottom. 
We then have Spider-Man 1 <laughs> with Tobey Maguire and Amazing Spider-Man 1. And then we have uh, on the pinnacle at this pyramid right now uh, of me recording this podcast before we talk about other things. Mm-hmm. You obviously have the Spider-Man 2 that is there. Right. But taking it back, Spider-Man 3 is just messy. Mm-hmm. That's the best way you can kind of portray what this is. It had too many ideas, too many characters competing for space. And the unfortunate thing, when you try and turn a film into a competition, there is no winner. Like, that's the the truth of it. Mm -hmm. Um, No one's actions from a character development point of view made sense. And the villains, heroes, police chiefs, weird old man who probably was Osborne's butler, but... No one actually has said so. They never called him a butler. He never said yes, master, or anything. That would illuminate to being a butler. No, no, no. But saying that, their potential was there for two really good, two, if not great, films. Mm. You, If you had have built this out, you could have potentially made two great Spider-Man 3, Spider-Man 4 films. There's just a lack of depth. To a degree, like they just the character development, the plot points were not thought out. If anything, the Harry Osborne arc, which has been building for three films, could have been made satisfyingly ended. Mm-hmm. You could have felt a tear jerk when they lost Harry at the end. Yeah. If anything, you get a oh, okay, and that's basically like what I felt. Yeah, um, like the oh, another grave had, scene, okay, oh, yeah. Exactly. You don't get the, like the the MJ Harry Peter love triangle friendship triangle arc. The the the, the two conflicting elements of Spider Man and Har- uh, Green Goblin being there fighting and tearing this triangle apart. A friends circle of friends. It's just a it's a loss to the film, mm-hmm. and I mean that in the best way. But I still think there was some nuggets of. There is, for all the bad, for all the dancing, jazz scenes, walking down emo Peter Parkers, there is that one beautiful scene where, for example, you get the redemption of Peter's arc. And with Sandman, for example, just that t- that you feel... Toby Maguire was a good Peter Parker to a degree. Absolutely. He wasn't... He was one, still one of the great... You still felt that there, mm-hmm. even though he couldn't keep his mask on for majority of films. <laughs> Remember, <laughs> actors at that time were exactly. definitely paid for their faces. So Yes. Uh, and I don't understand why he uh, got paid for his face. But anyway, to wrap it all up, Spider-Man 3 is a testament to the fact that even if you got some of the most talented actors of your time some of the most talented writers and directors, the most talented just cinematography, CGI makers, working on a project, working on a film, that even with all that talent, sometimes the system just breaks and makes the movie its own worst enemy. And that's really it. Yeah. Yeah. Oof. Bit of a downer there, gentlemen. Yeah. But we have a beautiful episode potentially coming soon when we everyone wants to know our views on homecoming absolutely and we'll get that in the coming weeks and we've had two beautiful episodes previous to this. yes yes absolutely yes. we always love doing these kind of retrospectives always good to go back and, and look at these movies uh, but we did get a bit of feedback in um obviously this is the most controversial of all of the spider-man movies which means 
we we get feedback in people want to talk about it which is great I did want to talk about this film, so it's good. It, it is good to, to have the opportunity to do it. Um, our first piece of feedback comes in from Claire Payne, who came in over on Facebook, on our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Defenders TV podcast. Claire says, all I'm going to say about Spider-Man 3 is, I love the opening titles as it gave you a recap of, C- of Spider-Man 2. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't like the villains in this film, and I actually forgot Topher Grace was in it. Oh, there you go. Uh, that 70s show star. Uh-huh. Has lost its shine. Yes, it yes. has. Sad, sad. Uh, Ronaldo sent us an email over at feedback at DefendersTVPodcast.com with his thoughts. He says, A big hello to Derek, John and Chris. Just dropping a line to say how excited I am for Homecoming. So watching the Raimi Spider-Man films have been a great primer for the new film coming out this week. In contrast to the evergreen Spider-Man 2, there are unfortunately plenty of faults with the third film. However, instead of just focusing on the negatives, I'd like to mix it up with some positive aspects. So here are my top points. Firstly, Sandman. I really like Thomas Hayden Schertz as Flint Marco, a.k.a. Sandman. He's an innately likable actor, and this translates to his portrayal. I could easily have had a third film with him as the sole villain. The fact that he's had such bad luck evokes sympathy and more so that the, with the relationship with a sick daughter. Uh, the birth scene of Sandman was a great scene as it encapsulates the love Marco has for his daughter and the motivations he has for surviving for her. Also, how cool it was to see Sandman in action on the big screen. You know, we did say it. Absolutely. Sandman, totally great. Yeah. Particularly those yeah. scenes, those early ones in the film. Really, really good. That formation scene, just beautiful. Definitely. The grabbing of the locket. Yeah, yeah. agree. Ronaldo goes on to say, too many cooks. Trying to wrap things up whilst introducing two villains was always going to be a hard task. There's just too much happening. And within the first 10 minutes of the film, we're introduced to Harry Green Goblin, Flint Marco running from police, and the symbiote falling from the sky. Just too much spread too thin. Would have loved no Venom or Black Suit at all. The Harry plot and Sandman would have been sufficient, but the studio obviously had other ideas. Next point, Mary Jane. I really enjoyed Kirsten Dunn's performance as well, with Parker so self-absorbed and ignorant to how MJ is feeling. Dunst really does invest a lot of emotion in the role, and as weird as it sounds, it's great to watch. Okay. (laughs) Uh, Yes, Kirsten Dunst is a fantastic actress. Mm -hmm. Just don't agree it's great to watch the MJ scenes. Just because it does, as we've kind of previously talked about in this podcast, there is an element of telenovela. Ronaldo goes on to say he likes Spider-Man's ego in the movie. It's a great tool in the writing to drive the wedge between Peter and MJ and at the same time make you feel less empathetic for him. It's established from the very start of the film and I remember when first watching the movie going, geez, Parker's a dick. I want... I wasn't as connected to Parker than I was in previous films and this was furthered when Parker donned the black suit. Spider-Man and Uncle Ben... This doesn't happen in the comics, and to me, it kind of wraps things up in a bow and is a bit too convenient. After MJ opens up to Peter to tell him how thoughtless he's been, i.e. kissing Gwen and thinking only of Spider-Man, Peter has a brief realisation of how self-centred he's been. Then in the next scene, he returns to his self-absorbed ways after hearing the news of his uncle's death. Think he would have learnt. Yeah, um, yeah, I agree that the, the whole idea of Sam Man and Uncle Ben being involved is just way too much. With no power comes no responsibility. There you go. That is what we're going to say for the tagline of this film. <laughs> uh, Amanalda has some just some basic notes about the film. He says the symbiote thought it looked really cool and exactly how I imagined it would be. The Harry versus Spidey fight. How long are the alleyways in New York? <laughs> it does seem to go on for 
miles, doesn't it? Uh, J. Jonah Jameson, probably obvious, but J.K. Simmons owns J. Jonah Jameson. Always funny and engaging whenever he's on screen. Love the banter he has with Miss Brandt, especially with the pills. Uh, love that too. Yeah, really good. Ray says the, the Spider-Man team-up. Uh, if anything, one great thing to see is Spider-Man team up with Harry to defeat the film. It's the bread and butter stuff for any fan of Spidey who's read the comics. Spidey team up on screen was cool, and it's one of the things I'm looking forward to in Homecoming. Interesting. Peter Parker's emo danced. While I appreciate Raimi's corny humor, and there are plenty of funny moments in the film, it's better in small doses. The musical number was just way too long and way too cringeworthy. I think we've talked enough about that, haven't we? <laughs> we don't know whether we're laughing with them or at them. I was slitting my wrists, I think. <laughs> Moving swiftly on. Pretty poor. Um, and finally, Ray says, uh, there are plenty of points to unpack in this one. Needless to say, it's not as strong as the first two films. If it was to do without the symbiote and somehow only focus on Sandman and Harry, I think it would have made a big difference to the film and, would have, and the reaction it ultimately received. In any case, we have Spider-Man Homecoming to look forward to. And with Shocker, Vulture and Iron Man thrown in the mix, I hope it doesn't fall for the same traps as Spider-Man 3. Finally, he says, I appreciate the purpose of Peter Parker being established as a little self-absorbed in order to set up what's to come with the symbiote and for Peter Parker to ultimately be redeemed. I still maintain, however, that by making the protagonist unlikable, there is a risk that the viewer becomes not as invested in the movie as a whole. And I think that's mainly the reason why the film struggles. Thanks so much for those thoughts, Ronaldo. Really well thought out. And as always, if you want to come and join the podcast and send us in your, a voicemail version of this, we could just play it. Um, <laughs> Just go through uh, our our website over at DefendersTVPodcast.com. Send voicemail version. You've always got some great points for us. Love hearing from you. Absolutely. Uh, and I, I absolutely agree. The concept of having your main character so unlikable for the movie and adding in so many extra things going on in the movie really doesn't give you a focal point as an audience member. So, yeah, probably does take away a lot of the enjoyment. Big time. Yeah, uh, Ronaldo, I agree with majority of what you say here. Um, unfortunately, just the uh, the MJ bit, mm. no, didn't work. And the Spidey team-ups, while I agree with you that Spidey team-ups in the comics are great, oh, yeah. the, uh, the, the, the one here is not to my liking. On that bombshell. Yes, on, the, on these notes, um, thank you so much, as always, fellow Defenders, for joining us for this episode. We will be covering more of Spider-Man as we uh, as we go through the months in between now and the Defenders on the 18th of August. The biggest one, obviously, is Spider-Man Homecoming has been released. It has is, is out in cinemas right now. I'm not going to spoil anything, but go see it. Absolutely. Because we will spoil everything on our next podcast. Ah, oh, Michael Keaton. Well... <laughs> go see it because then you're going to be able to listen to our podcast if you don't go and see it you will not be able to listen to our podcast review which will be coming out hopefully later on in the week we'll be recording it uh, in a couple of days time so it'll be very close to this podcast we're not going to have a gap of an entire week waiting for the next one to come out make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you get that over on DefendersTVPodcast.com slash iTunes. Absolutely. Jamie Bell was excellent as Spider-Man. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Tom Holland. Yeah. Tom Holland. That's it. Uh, you can also find us on any other good podcast catcher by looking for Defenders TV Podcast um, uh, in any of the search engines. Yeah. yeah, or pop on over to Apple Podcasts and search Defenders TV Podcast. Uh, please subscribe uh, to listen, and if you are in such a generous mood, of course, you can always leave a review uh, to tell us how we're doing. And of course, yes, 
come over to the Facebook group and join us, comment, discuss, share over at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash Defenders TV podcast. So there you go, webheads. We are finished with the Raimi-verse. We were moving on to the MCU. And uh, yeah, bring it on. It's a homecoming of a homecoming. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. There we go, gentlemen. With a home uh, run thrown in. You... Or is it? Thanks so much for joining us. We will talk to you again next time. Absolutely. I'm off to listen to hours and hours of jazz. Thank you, as always, for listening. Um, I will speak with you again soon. See you soon, guys. Bye. 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 Bye.